and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. My name is George Shaft, and joining me today is Josef Khabina. He is someone that you would have heard from before, as Thomas interviewed him not that long ago. His education is something to be jealous for, an MA in International Relations and Diplomacy at the University College of International Relations and Public Relations in Prague, an International Relations and Affairs PhD, and also a PhD in International Relations at Moscow State Institute of International Relations. As if that wasn't enough, he has also worked in a wide variety of prestigious roles, including visiting lecturer at Moscow State Institute, political consultant in Moscow, and chief analyst at Exporteri.sk. To go along with that, he's had a huge variety of articles to go with it, including the real danger of the few cities trap in post-Soviet space in the new Eastern European. The first ship has been allowed to sail out of Odessa uh, with a shipment full of grain. When the war started, of course, Russia and started targeting Ukrainian ships, as is quite normal in wars. There was a deal that Thomas and I discussed a lot in our recent Cynical Talk podcast, where we discussed the fact that within 12 hours of the agreement being signed, Russia uh, launched missiles at Odessa, and it looked like the, de- the deal was in jeopardy, yet now the first ship has been allowed, so seems like the deal might be back on. Josef, why do you think Russia has now doubled back again you know, to honour this agreement now and let ships start sailing again? And how do you think that this, how do you think this sort of relates to, if you will, the Russian grand strategy? Yeah, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, it's the second podcast we're recording here. And uh, let me first note one thing that we'll, uh, uh, we should touch because, uh, uh, because we're, we're going to discuss the Russian grand strategy, which, uh, also, which works with the Russian national interests, Russian threat perceptions, and uh, Russian strategic culture. So it might sound that I am sympathetic with Russians, but I am not. Uh, I strongly disagree with the attack on Ukraine. I think it's a it's a criminal act. And uh, I just wanted to clarify this uh, in the beginning of the podcast so the listeners don't get the impression that I really sympathize, uh, sympathize with uh, breaking international law and murdering civil- civilians on the battlefield. So uh if i jump uh into into your question uh first of all the 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 deal was valid as of 1st of august until then russian russians actually can or could bomb the, the ukrainian uh ports also they still can bomb 
Ukrainian ports. There are four preconditions for for the for for, for the deal, and one of those is uh, that. Russians will not target ports while shipments are in transit. So uh, this will obviously be very hard to to prove, even though we've got lots of uh, lots of recent tech as a satellite satellite imagery, etc. But Russians are very good in misinformation campaigns. So so uh, I mean, even if they do it, uh, it will be hard to prove, and then it's gonna become rather, I would say, um, finger pointing. But uh, in the end of the day, it's Ukrainians who want to, uh, who want to uh, export their grain and food, food uh, related exports into the world. And uh, the world actually needs it uh, in order to prevent our, I'd say now mitigate the, the food crisis. And how does that relate to Russian grand strategy. I don't think that relates to Russian grand strategy. Uh, if it relates to if it relates to to, to Russian strategy on the ground, uh, I, I I don't know. I um, definitely the food security, or maybe maybe we could say that this relates uh, to to Russian strategy in a way that Russians wants to be the ones who are going to solve the food crisis in the Middle East. Because as we all know, a uh, majority of Russian, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Ukrainian f- uh, agricultural production is exported to Middle East. And this is a region where Russia has a lot of interests, uh, where Russia was challenging the US dominance since its uh, intervention in Syria. Uh, and it was doing it very successfully on and with very limited resources so it was it was one part of russian and this this is where we can claim that this was a part of a grand strategy uh i think this was a very smart move from russians because they they've managed to 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 absolutely um, change the, the status quo in the middle east with um, very few resources uh, dedicated to to it and lots of diplomacy on the ground. And, and, and this actually leads me to, to the fact that uh, Putin, Erdogan and, uh, uh, and Iranian uh, Prime Minister uh, Raisi, uh, they all met uh, in, uh, I mean, two weeks ago before the, before the Green Deal was signed. And all three of them have uh, their own interests in the Middle East. All three of them were pre- present uh, in, in solutions uh, in Syria. Uh, and uh, they all three are actually opposing the U.S. interests on the ground in the, in the, in the, in the Middle East. And, the, and why I'm saying about the U.S. interests, because uh, the large chunk of a Russian grand strategy is actually about uh, challenging or, or, or undermining the, the liberal order whenever and wherever that is possible for Russians. So, so that's why I'm referring to, to the U.S. interests in the Middle East and uh, the U.S. interests in the Middle East contra the Russian ones. We've been hearing a lot about the food situation with uh, the Middle East and the exports, you know, most notably Egypt, which is looking at its strategic reserves and you know, trying to ponder, you know, how long is that going to last? 
let's talk about the you know this grand strategy you know uh how does ukraine fit into russian grand strategy it actually takes all three boxes why it is relevant to keep russian influence in ukraine alive first of all uh since the end of the cold war russian foreign policy I mean, when it realized that it's in a deep decline in the post of its pace, uh, they started to talk about how to revert this decline. Because, you know, we in the West, when analyzing, uh, when analyzing the, the Russian foreign policy we are, or, or the events that took place after the end of the Cold War, we take it as a deal done, like, 1991 happened and and just Soviet Union collapsed and, and all the countries were suddenly free of Russian influence or the Soviet influence. And all these countries were suddenly just free to choose their own faith and everything. But uh, the truth be told, Russians, Russian influence is pretty much alive in these countries. That's the first and foremost thing to understand. These countries, a majority of them, such as, I don't know, Armenia, Central, Euro- Central Asian countries, and Ukraine, these countries were dependent, and Belarus, uh, I, I forgot that one, uh, these countries were pretty much dependent on finances and loans and cheap energies from Russia. And their influence was very, very alive in these countries. And and even the, the NATO enlargement happened gradually. It didn't happen overnight, right? And and the concerns in nineties about NATO eastward expansion were just exactly because of the of the fact that, that the Russian influence in these countries was so strong. And and the opponents of uh, NATO's eastward expansion, they usually tend to somehow portray the situation in a manner that Russia would uh, would react that the NATO ex- is expanding to 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 Russia Russia's uh, sphere of influence. So so so. This decline in Russian influence was gradual and it was taking place since 1991. And the Ukraine or Georgian war or policing actions in Kazakhstan and Belarus, these actions are, or Chechen, uh, Chechen wars, uh, these actions are, uh, are actually a part of Russian grand strategy and it's aimed to, to just stop the declining influence of Russia. And then the second pillar of Russian grand strategy is what I call resurgentism. So it's it's a name to uh, revive Russian position in the world, Russian global position, uh, where they believe, and this is where the where the where the relations between Russia and uh, and the West became uh, became problematic because Russia thought after the end of the Cold War, we know that Russia was a, uh, started as a the Russian Federation, the modern Russian Federation started as a, a as a pro-Western country. Even Putin himself was a pro-Western leader. And the point where these relations started to sour was when Russians realized that they won't be taken as a as an equal amongst the strong. They will be taken as a junior partner to the US. And 
it, this demonstrates the phrase of uh, of former uh, Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Andrei Kozirev, who said we don't need uh, foreign policy, we just need to orient uh, uh, just to look up to the, the Washington and, and, and behave uh, according to Washington. And, and I think uh, this has changed with obviously with Primakov and uh, and his uh, conception of uh, multipolarity and this is why they why, why they uh, pursue this vision of polycentric or multipolar world. Uh, it's just because they want flat higher uh, hierarchy, not the hierarchy with the one dominant actor. Mm. And what was actually and there's a third pillar of Russian grand strategy, and that's actually trying to undermine the biggest obstacle in the flat hierarchy, and that's the liberal order, because that was the dominant force in the global affairs since the end of the Cold War. It was led by the US, and was actually the, that is for Russians, the main competitor, not the European states. That's why the entire Russian elite was trying to get the U.S. behind the table at the end of the last year before the invasion. They wanted the U.S. to answer on their demands, not the European states, even though they were demanding, they were demanding uh, uh, let's say, a uh, revision of, uh, of uh, security architecture in the Europe. Sorry for interrupting, but there was a recent sort of you know, declassification of some various phone calls. And even in Boris Yeltsin time, uh, Boris Yeltsin personally sort of asked Bill Clinton, you know, hey, we can handle Europe. You can, you don't need to, you know, control all of it. We can, we can look after its security and all the rest of it. So it's a long running thing that even survived the immediate aftermath of the Soviet Union. No, no, uh, that's correct. Uh, And yes, uh, yes, you're right. But um... Yeltsin had uh, a very good relationship with uh, with Clinton. We know that uh, the the Clinton's uh, administration sent his election advisors to to Russia when 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 Yeltsin was rerunning for for president. So yes, the the relationship between the U.S. and Russia was quite good after the end of the Cold War, and it soured gradually and. It's just you know from the from the Russian perspective, uh, it is just because they they think that they should remain a great power, an autonomous great power with their own national interests. You know, <laughs> while the uni- unipolar orders are usually hierarchically uh, organized, so there is one dominant actor that is actually providing providing lots of benefits and security. I actually was thinking about this uh, before this podcast. We're living the end of a of a golden era uh, where we were enjoying uh, uh, a calm times of uh, unipolarity because you know uh, there is this school of hegemonic stability theory that actually uh, actually is very right about the peaceful nature of a unipolar world because there is no challenger to the order and uh, and the countries living under the hegemon is. Uh, th- these countries are uh, actually enjoying a lot of benefits uh, stemming from uh, from from having this 
far superior senior partner. Whereas in the multipolar world, we, we see a much, much more uh, violent nature and much more struggle for power and competition for, 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 for power and influence in the, in the world. So, and we're going to, we're going to see that much more now. And we, we see that on, 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 on really, I, I would say very quickly deteriorating uh, relations between the U.S. and China and absolute collapse of the the relationship between the Russia and the West. It's something that keeps me up at night is uh, because this is the first time we're seeing you've seen it on a global scale, but on regional basis, it's quite common to have you know major empires that just dominate everything and ensure the peace. You know, China in its area for the past four thousand years, the Roman Empire during its time would do the same. I mean, you look at the history of the Roman Empire and most of its wars were fought against the Persians because they were the only empire that were a rival and were of comparable you know, weight. And they were clashing on the edges of who would have influence over Armenia and over the Arabs and this sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I completely would agree. And as I said, it's something that keeps me up at night because the end of a unipolar world order to be replaced by a multipolar one that... It doesn't sound that attractive. I think we'll be witnessing lots of transformation in the years to come. I actually, I actually read, and I don't know who wrote that, but that someone who, who compared these times to, to the beginning of 20th century, that, you know, the, the technological transformation that is going, going on now. I mean, we might be witnessing, you know, at the beginning of 20th century people were riding were riding horses and in the midst of 20th century people were driving cars right uh, they were flying they were actually flying through 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 continents and and we're in the beginning of a similar uh, technological transformation the the social changes that took place uh, in the beginning of the 20th century again collapse of the entire system of international affairs uh, the great depression uh, the new form of economy and it, at the end of that was actually uh, the winners at the end of the day the winners were the ones who came up with the successful mo- economic models and the, the most stable social structures so the us and the soviet union um, so we will be the, the winners of this multipolar race now will be uh, the ones who would come with uh, something similar to it and one more thing uh, i wanted to say is that multipolar structures and I actually researched that in my in my dissertation as an additional research. I found out that the multipolar structures are the most durable ones. So I uh, so these structures tend to to protract for several centuries because uh, because it's much harder to become a hegemon in in a structure where everybody is counterbalancing against your might. Uh, so, so that's the primary mode of behavior in, in multipolar structures. Um, and, and actually the unipolar ones are the, the, the ones with the shortest uh, lifespan. Uh, but that's just a historical research. Uh, anything can happen as of now. So It's a historical research with a lot of truth to it. You think of the medieval times and most of those countries, or a lot of them, are still around. France, Portugal, Spain, and there was centuries and centuries of 
warfare, fighting, continuous, you know, shifting of alliances. The other thing, point that I definitely think a lot about is the fact that you talk about how in the first half of the 20th century, you know, there was this massive reordering of the world order uh, in a way that you could say maybe now Russia doesn't think is to its benefit. But the world has changed a lot, you know. Smartphones weren't around in 1950, but they are now, you know. Yeah, and, and look at look how 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 rapid these changes now uh, are. You know, like like the, the smartphones. Like 20 years ago, we had these huge brick phones that you 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 had to to carry in a special case with you, and now you got the now you got a pocket phone that can. Take a pictures like a professional f- camera. Uh, it can it can uh, find you any information on the internet you like, and you can pretty much replace the computer with that. Lots of people don't don't even own the computer today. If they don't really need to, they just have their own smartphone. So so the the progress, the technological progress, is much faster than the than than it was before. So yeah, I mean we might be witnessing much much uh, faster uh, changes. Much quicker, everything might be much quicker than we we think now. Amidst all of these technological innovations, amidst all of these changes, of course, it leaves a bit of a question of what does Russia think is worth taking in Ukraine amidst all of this? You know, famously, the leader of the Donetsk People's Republic uh, reported that they'd had a twenty five percent casualty rate amongst their forces you know this and these are supposed to be the people that they're liberate you know that they're saying they're going to liberate what is it that russia views as such critical importance to take in ukraine well i think just for the starters repeat myself i think it's about reverting russian decline and definitely there's a there's a phenomenon that i call thucydides trap and uh, it is, you know, this is where Russia or its elites is entrapped in their own threat perceptions and anxieties about what's happening in the post-Soviet space. And this is this is with starting decline in Russian influence in these uh, in these areas, and then there is a domestic threat perception that is based on based on fears of Russian internal. Uh, or domestic sovereignty, because they think that once you know all the revolutions, pro-Western revolutions in their neighborhood, will be over, then the the final act is actually the liberalization of Russia, and with that comes also the the problem of of uh, survival of uh, the current Russian elite, right? Because that puts in stake Russian uh, faith of uh, Vladimir Putin, Lavrov, Shoigu, all, all the people in the in the current Kremlin establishment. So th- this is actually very interesting, and and I will get back to to what's at, at stake for for Russians in Ukraine. But if if this liberalization or some sort of a domestic uh, revolution will go down in, in Russia, I think that there will be a, a serious question about what to do with uh, with these people, right? Uh, should we hang them like Saddam Hussein? Or, or what is going to happen to them? And then in the in at the end of this thought, because I don't want to I don't want to contemplate about that. Uh, at the end of this thought is that they know 
that this this discussion will take part in the West or somewhere wherever that might be, and they will fight. They will definitely double down on their efforts to win this war and avert their own to prevent their own some sort of a fall or 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 or, or just to avoid losing the grip on power in Russia. So because their very survival, I mean, their physical survival is at stake here. But back to the, the to the threat perception. And the second uh, second part of these threat perceptions is the border security, right? And this is about enlargement of NATO, enlargement of uh, of uh, pro-Western forces in the Russian neighborhood, uh, what they call near abroad. And this threat perception is based on the fact that uh, Russia is firstly a great power and it has its own sphere of influence, which is in the countries that were usually uh, former Soviet republics where Russia has really strong cultural ties, uh, where Russia has really strong, really strong influence or had, as in case of Ukraine, because we see that that's not true anymore. And uh, that's where the, actually the, the, the strategic blunder of Russia lies, uh, because they thought that uh, the Ukrainians or at least some part of Ukraine will side with them, but they are now perceived as an occupational force, will likely, if... Russia succeeds in, in its military goals. They will see, and we already witnessed, partisan war, aerial wars. So the second pillar of their threat perception or domestic threat perception is about keeping their border territories uh, as, uh, as free of foreign influence as possible in order to keep their borders intact it's it's connected with russian you know thinking about geopolitics and it's a, it's a land power so so we need to understand that the russia russian strategic interests were formed in the in the, in, in in the conditions of a constant land pressures that's why they're so anxious about their borders you know uh napoleon entered russia through through belarus uh hitler entered russia through belarus so through land not through, through, through sea, uh, not on sea. And the third, and this is um, perhaps, uh, th- this is actually touching uh, one of the pillars of Russian grand strategy, that is resurgence of our revival of Russian great power status. And, you know, Russians believe that they have to be a great power in order to, to secure their interests in the world, in order to in, in order for Russia to survive in the world. And it's a deeply rooted belief in, in Russian strategic culture. It spills over to all spheres of security in Russia. And that actually, and it can be actually very nicely demonstrated on how Russia uh, approaches uh, material power in its history, they always were so reliant on the military power, even though there were the coordination in, in technology or, 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 you know, GDP per capita was very low. The Russia was still maintaining the strongest army in Europe, at least according to manpower. Uh, that's that's the story of a, of a, of a mid 19th century Crimean War, where British and, and French army, these armies were much smaller, but they were much better organized and much, they were technologically preponderant. But at the same time, Russians had more, more military, but they couldn't, for instance, uh, 
move uh, efficiently because uh, their road system and infrastructure uh, were were really very very backwardish. So these things are very uh, very common to Russians, even Soviet uh, Soviet Union. Their army was was much more developed than their I don't know uh, civilian technology in uh, in the Soviet times. And uh, yeah, so 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 the belief uh, to be a great power and 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 the right to be a great power and this multipolar orientation of Russia and polycentrism, it's deeply rooted in Russian strategic culture. And if you're losing your influence and in international affairs, uh, if one state is losing influence, it's usually on the expense of the other. So. When when China becomes a hegemon, it will become a hegemon on the, the U.S. expense, right? When the Ukraine becomes a Western bulwark tomorrow, it will become on the uh, it will become a Western bulwark uh, in the Eastern Europe on the expense of Russia, because you know they will lose their influence. So so this, that's why we speak about the relative relative decline in international affairs, because you can materially you can grow, but your influence decreases. That means that you're in a relative decline because uh, other actors are growing. Thus, the Thucydides trap in a post-Soviet means for Russia, why, the, why they're entrapped in this Thucydides logic, why they had to, in their eyes, not in my opinion, uh, had to attack Ukraine before the, the West is become, would become uh, much preponderant in this region and they would become much stronger to counter their influence. Of course, this doesn't mean that Russians are right or, or, or justified in their actions. Quite the contrary. It's their fault that they couldn't, they, they couldn't come up with a, with a, with a vibrant economy and a vibrant economic model and, and social model and, uh, and political model that would actually attract Ukraine. Because what was initially this clash over the Ukraine in 2014, it was about accession to, to, to the EU. And, and the EU isn't about military. I know that EU and NATO, they come hand in hand together, like it or not. But at the same time, you know, people in Ukraine didn't want NATO's military. They wanted... Uh, economic benefits of the EU. They wanted to to want. They want. They, they want to prosper. And this is where Russians failed after the Cold War. When it comes down to when it boils down to to the post-Soviet space, and that's why these you know diets were constantly uh, happening. So let's talk about 2014, and let's talk about the sort of that regional sphere influence because the first thing. I notice when looking at this region is that over half of the world's unrecognized states are within Russia's claimed sphere of influence. Transnistria, Abkhazia, Nagorno-Karabakh, which has recently been seeing some more violence again. And then not to mention, of course, the 2014 creations of the people's uh, republics in Donetsk and Luhansk, <laughs> all of which Russia has played a direct role, usually in favor of these entities. And it seems, you know, from me to on the outside looking in, that Russia's strategy seems to involve leaving a lot of frozen conflicts around in its neighboring states. I mean, even Ukraine had one where Luhansk and Donetsk were fighting against Ukraine and another Minsk Accords, and it was, it was just a frozen conflict yet again. Why does Russia see this as better than, you know, status quo prospering neighbors? 
And then why expand the conflict from the Donbass to across all of Ukraine? The frozen conflicts, I mean, I, I actually uh, thought about this many times, and it's not really my expertise, because every, every one of those conflicts had its own background. I know about few. Uh, uh, for instance, Georgia started much in, in a much different fashion than Ukraine, and, and it ended up like, uh, uh, like Ukraine, Ukraine today, except the fact that Ukraine is defending itself quite successfully. You know, you always take uh, a minority, and this is, this is something uh, to do with, with redrawing of borders after the collapse of Soviet Union. There were so many minorities that left out of their territories uh, or Russian enclaves and, uh, and um, all, the, all, all the small nations that, um, for instance, did not agree with, with the organization of, for their, uh, of their states after, after the Soviet Union collapsed because they were part of the Soviet Union and, and during the Soviet Union, nobody was really, you know, thinking about, it was more about administration. These borders of, uh, of Soviet republics were uh, drawn based on, based on administrational, issue, administrational issues. That's why Soviets created Ukraine. That's why they gave, uh, they gave uh, Crimea to the Ukraine, even though it's very, it's very, it's very uh, nuanced issue. But, uh, but the, the primary driver behind that was actually the, uh, the administration. And, and when, the, when the Soviet Union broke down and, and these administrational parts of the Soviet Union started to exist as, a, as, an, as, as independent states, um, the conflicts eventually occurred. The same counts for, for the Central Asia that is uh, still very problematic to the day. Uh, the same counts for uh, for Armenia and Azerbaijan. When Armenia in nineties was uh, preponderant over Azerbaijan, today they can't find it. And Armenia is a is a is a pro-Russian state in the middle of region that is totally that is that is hostile towards them. So so leaving these frozen conflicts is usually based on the fact that some minority does not want to belong to, to the state. They were, they were attached after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, there's one issue. And the second issue is, uh, and I, what I believe is that in many of those cases, Russia wasn't powerful enough to, to, to coerce its will in a full extent because uh, it's a limit of, uh, of a conquest in the 21st century. You just can't go and conquer an independent state or sovereign state in the 21st century because it will backfire eventually. Makes a lot of sense. So I guess that, in your view, we probably won't see the Russian flag flying over Kiev, let alone a place like Lviv. The question then becomes, what will, you know, what does Russian victory then look like in Ukraine? And how feasible is that? Well, this is very hard to tell. Um, you know, we don't know how how Russians will fare in the, in the, in the, in the months to come, and how Ukraine army is going to perform. 
so we actually might see a uh, Russian flag over Kiev, even though it's uh, it's the most tragic scenario or the worst case scenario. I mean, when it goes down to the just to the Ukraine, because uh, the worst case scenario is that the war will spiral out of control and it will spread to the, the entire region and eventually will be facing the the um, the NATO Russia war, which is not very. Um, nuclear Armageddon does not entice, yes. Yeah, yes, it's not very nice prospect uh, for the future. But so, so the victory, I think, you know, Ukrainians cannot back down. Russians cannot back down too, because uh, now it has become uh, a whole national issue. They are mobilizing in the region, the, the voluntary battalions based on, you know. Uh, so I don't think that anybody, anyone would buy the defeat in Moscow. And uh, I mean, Ukrainians are fighting for their bare lives. So uh, so I I think this, the, the most likely scenario is a frozen conflict at the moment, but we don't know how, how, how the tensions will spiral in the future, so anything can happen. I know that I gave you too broad answer to, to very 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 specific question, but I, I don't wanna I don't wanna do this crystal ball reading. I don't think we we're having a full full picture of what's happening on the front line, even though we're we're living in a time when we actually can follow the war uh, minute by minute. It's not always precise and and the sources can vary we, you can have russian sources that are saying that russian army is doing well then you have ukrainian sources that they saying uh that the ukrainian army is doing well and 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 everything else is under the fog of war so so let's stick with uh with the broad answer that uh, we don't really know uh what is going to happen and whether whether russia or ukraine will able will be able to prevail uh, because both options are on the table now. But let's hope for, for as little civilian casualties as possible. I suppose then to round it off then, I'll have to ask you to go with the crystal ball one more time, which is that recent research has suggested that it could take decades for Russia to rebuild its military strength. As I mentioned earlier, there's, the estimate is that they've lost about 75,000 soldiers in the fighting. Do you think that this is true? And how do you think that will affect Russia's grand strategy moving forward? Uh, it can be true. Again, I'm not a military expert, so I cannot say really how, how, how fast, how quick there will be in, in retraining and recruiting a new army, uh, in what condition their economy will be at the end of the day. Uh, this will also be, be, will be very decisive element in rebuilding Russian army. And we also don't know how much of their capability they still have left. Because, you know, I mean, one thing is data we have. And the other thing is what Russians have in their secret depots and secret programs. So there, it is very hard to tell how, how they uh, how they're going to do it. But uh, the war in Ukraine will definitely affect their grand strategy. We don't know the extent or, or, or in which areas it's going to be affected by this war because we don't know the outcome. First of all, their threat perceptions are here to stay. So if we will witness uh, Russians losing grip 
in some of its former dominions, let's say Belarus, let's say, I don't know, uh, again, Georgia, just we know now that the situation in Georgia is much more pro-Russian as in 2008. Uh, if if we want if we will be seeing these things again, I think Russia will again resort to hard power solutions, and it's mostly because they they lack any other tools of coercion. Well, with that, then uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, and uh, it's been a pleasure to to talk with you. And that wraps up this week's cynical talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical.